0: Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: This is Megan Schneider, Senior Director of Government Affairs at Nakubo. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Nakubo In Brief podcast. I am thrilled today to be joined by Brad Kendricks, who serves as Executive Vice President of Finance and Operations at both Chandler Gilbert Community College and Mesa Community College in the Phoenix metro area. Brad, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks for the invitation, Megan.
1: So to kick things off, can you uh, can you just tell us a little bit about our institutions? I know community colleges uh, can look very different depending on where you are. So can you tell us a little bit about the institutions that you serve?
0: Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm serving a dual appointment as both CDO at both Chandler Gilbert and Mesa Community College. And these are both part of the Maricopa Community College District in the Phoenix area. So Chandler Gilbert serves about 19,000 full-time and part-time students, while Mesa serves 30,000. All in, the 10 Maricopa system colleges uh, educate over 165,000 students each year, making it the largest provider of higher education in Arizona. Now, while 40% of those students come to us as first-time students, the remainder come to us with some college or university experience in order to complete their degrees or reskill. Similarly, 70% of our students are taking less than full-time course loads while balancing work and family obligations. And a large number of those students aim to transfer to the university but at the same time, we have a broad range of workforce programs, especially in allied health technology, IT, skilled trades, uh, that all create pathways to both university transfer and immediate employment.
1: So, Brad, you you mentioned your full-time versus part-time enrollment, um, which is really, really sort of going to set us up nicely for the crux of what we're talking about today. Because in our discussion today, I really want to talk with you about... Uh, the CARES Act, obviously we are recording this in the height of the uh, coronavirus pandemic and uh, institutions have already started to receive allocations via uh, one of the federal government's uh, three thus far major relief bills. And of course, I think by this point, we're all familiar with the CARES Act Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund, or HERF, as I'll refer to it as. Um, and while there are several different pots of funds within the HERF. Uh, the one that we'll probably talk about the most today is the allocations under 18004A1. And of course, that is the portion of funds that most schools are probably familiar with. That's the uh, portion of funds that splits the allocation up into both an institutional share and, emerg- and emergency grant aid to students share. Um, and I really wanna dive right in, Brad, one of the criticisms of the HERF funds that we have heard particularly from community community colleges is that, uh, that allocation formula, which it was, it was set out by Congress. Um, but the allocation formula relied, uh, almost exclusively on full-time enrollment. So your, the amount of her funds that you received was based on the amount of, uh, recipient students you had, and then just your full-time enrollment base. But in any case, uh, Full-time enrollment played heavily into determining how much aid you received under uh, that portion of her funds. And I know that that has been uh, a bit of a a sore point with a lot of community colleges. Um, Would you say that that uh, criticism of the allocation model is fair? Um, And if so, did you see it having an impact on the two community colleges that you serve?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely a fair assessment. And at the same time, candidly, it's not really unexpected. Federal policymaking has historically focused on full-time equivalent student metrics using the lens of the residential university, while nearly 40% of college students are attending community colleges in the U.S. The full-time equivalent is a good measure of instructional load, but it's not an accurate measure of the workload associated with enrolling, guiding, and supporting individual students. Because we don't spend, as you imagine, we don't spend any less time uh, working with a student because they're taking three classes rather than five. Further, it strikes me that the students we serve, generally speaking, are those that are most directly impacted by the current economic fallout of the pandemic, including those working on the front lines of industries. So, while support of all higher education infrastructure during this time is important, the goal is if the goal is to help workers navigate these difficulties, community college are where those workers are, and community colleges are where near term workforce development happens. So, now that we're I'll note that we're absolutely pleased that we were able to provide direct aid to our students at this time and to have some relief from the cost of navigating the pandemic. But I can't recognize this, that the allocation formula driven by student volume would have, resulted, would have resulted in double the amount that we actually were allocating.
1: Wow, that's, that's quite a big difference, uh, double the amount. Um, Brad, one thing that you touched on in your response that I would love to dive into a little bit more is uh, your mention of... Uh, the sort of tendency of the federal government to also uh, skew towards metrics based around residential institutions. Uh, Because I know one of the other CARES Act per uh, fund allocation models and guidance criticism that we've seen, especially from community college college members, is that uh, for that institutional portion of funds, uh, the allowable uses for institutions are relatively limited. Um, they are, you know, have to be expenses deriving with your, from your institution's transition to all online education. Um, but some of the other allowable uses have been for, uh, allowing institutions to reimburse themselves for expenses that they had to dole out to reimburse students for, um, housing plans or dining plans, uh, that, uh, came about when campuses had to shut down entirely and students had to move off campus and obviously weren't making uh, use of their campus dining halls. So what I have been hearing from uh, community colleges is that within that very sort of narrow scope, it's hard for community colleges who are not necessarily, or at least most community colleges that are not residential and don't have that expense uh, of uh, housing and dining refunds that they're making quite to the same extent as other institutions might be. Which is not to say that you don't have plenty of expenses, right? They're just not a permitted use of this institutional uh, share of funds. So I just, I'm curious, have you had that experience at your two institutions? And just generally, how has your experience been trying to utilize that institutional share portion of funds uh, within the parameters that Ed has established?
0: Yeah. You know, I hate coming off as critical, but the guidance around the allowable uses within both and, in my opinion, too narrowly applied, like you mentioned. Specifically, the focus on institutional losses, it speaks to that auxiliary-heavy university business model, housing, nail plans, and so forth, and that's not generally part of the commuter college financial model. You know, outside of those losses and the direct costs related to response and mitigation, which we, we all have to carry, uh, the funds are directed towards investments specifically related to institu- building institutional capacity for online ed, and while that's reasonable, the assumption baked in is that we haven't already made many of those investments to some degree in the past. So, again, we we appreciate having the resources available to continue to invest and refine our delivery infrastructure. But right now, we're feeling the most pressure in the area of workforce development. I mean, our industry partners are bringing us a variety of urgent needs related to changing industry related to the coronavirus. But we simply don't have the resources to elevate those programs we need. I mean, emerging regional industries, whether that's cybersecurity, IT, artificial intelligence, are constant focus and are relevant to navigating these changes. Allied health is another big one right now, with healthcare at the forefront of our national conversation. Anyway, summarizing, the higher ed CARES funds were positioned to help colleges cover losses and get online during the pandemic. But that funding was not positioned to fuel community colleges to do what they do best, which is prepare students for career mobility and resiliency.
1: Thanks, Brad. And so we're going to sort of stick on (laughs) criticism of ed-her-funds. And I will add the caveat, I know that all of our institutions are happy that they have received anything from the federal government and any level of support is much needed and much appreciated. But one of the other sort of controversial pieces of Department of Ed guidance um, was that uh, for this portion of 18004A1-her-funds, Uh, student eligibility for those uh, CARES Act Emergency Grant Aid to Students funds uh, could only be made by institutions to students that were Title IV eligible and only students who were not exclusively online students at the time of the pandemic. And of course, within that Title IV eligible, we know that a big group of students that were excluded by uh, not being Title IV eligible were, of course, uh, DACA recipient students So I I know that different institutions, sometimes based on geography, sometimes just based on uh, sort of student body makeup, have had differing responses to that guidance. Um, Was this guidance on student eligibility for those emergency grant aid funds uh, a source of any concern for your campuses?
0: Absolutely. I mean, first of all, a quarter or more of the students in the Maricopa system are online students by nature of being working adults. Our students should have been targets for aid because of their susceptibility to the downturn and their overall at-risk profile. So our preference would have been to help all students stay enrolled and manage life commitments during time, not to provide compensation for a change in student experience, which is kind of how it ended up being in the end. Title IV eligibility requirements were understandable, but also difficult to administer on the fly. In an environment where we're constantly struggling to get students to complete a FAFSA, it took an administrative lift to approximate eligibility and to create a mechanism for students to to volunteer and self-certify in order to meet the remaining requirements so that we could talk to them about getting some of this aid. Again, we would have gotten funds into more students' hands more quickly if we had the flexibility to target aid based on what we know as at-risk characteristics rather than having to comply with, with broader guidelines. And obviously, being in Arizona, you know, the the issues related to immigration status and dreamers are a constant sore spot uh, as it relates to federal policy. And, you know, we know the, the difficulty of navigating that situation. But at the same time, our focus is on the residents of Arizona and the students that we serve. And we wish that we had, again, the flexibility to serve all of those students to help complete their goals.
1: Uh, we're going to turn a little bit away from the Department of Ed for a second. Uh but I want to touch on something that I know has been a, a sore point uh, for some public institutions. So before Congress passed the CARES Act, they passed uh, their second big coronavirus relief piece of legislation, which was the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, or FFCRA. And there wasn't much in the way of higher ed funding support in that bill. But what there was, uh, was a requirement for small businesses, but also all public institutions, including all public colleges and universities to provide uh, expanded sick and medical leave. Um, However, the caveat to that was, well, so the small businesses were able to take a corresponding tax credit that was meant to offset some of the expense of that uh, additional provided leave. Um, All public entities, including public colleges and universities, like the institutions you serve, Uh, were not able to take advantage of the corresponding tax credits. They were barred by the legislation from making use of those tax credits to offset some of the expense. Um, I know for very large public institutions, this has been a a sore spot for them and a source of quite a bit of extra expense. Um, I'm just wondering, has this uh, exclusion from the uh, FFCRA tax credit? despite the requirement to provide expanded leave had any sort of impact on your institution? Has it been something that's uh, caused you a, a, quite a bit of additional expense?
0: Of course it's impacted uh, our well-being. I mean, we absolutely support having a framework for giving our employees flexibility as we can this. But the reality is that additional paid leave mandates are a net cost. So I don't have current numbers handy related to the cost thus far. However, I expect that figure to grow significantly this fall as families have to utilize expanded FMLA in order to navigate the online and hybrid K-12 education plans that are currently being unrolled across the region's school districts. You know, you mentioned the tax discrepancy between public and private, which is not lost on the institutions. You know, When it comes to public policy and incentivizing institutional action, I don't see the, the purpose in treating public organizations differently than private ones. The fact is that higher the, the higher net cost for public institutions is ultimately going to fall directly on taxpayers and tuition-paying students.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, thanks, Brad, for highlighting that. Uh, so I was hoping you could maybe share with us. You and I are, fil- are recording this right now at the end of July. Um, we are on the precipice of seeing another large federal uh, relief piece of legislation um, because this is an election year and we are already, you know, almost August, this is probably the last large piece of legislation related to COVID uh, pandemic relief that we will see uh, in 2020. So I was just wondering, are there a, a few items that are particularly, particularly important to your institutions uh, to see in that next federal relief package?
0: Yeah, thanks for asking. You know, as I mentioned earlier, our top priority is flexibility. You know, the burden of compliance, you know, limitations of over-targeting, that really inhibits the college's ability to quickly help those students who we have known uh, need the most and to help prevent them uh, from, from dropping out and allow them to continue on uh, in our programs. You know, persistence of our goal, pandemic or not, and it's, you know, ultra important even now. Uh, but bigger picture, you know, the community colleges really need funding to support innovation of workforce-facing programs. You know, there's a reason why we're called community colleges, and the community element is about doing what we can in order to support our local industry and our local workers and students to get them, uh, get them through this. So right now, we need nurses desperately. We need allied health trades faster than we can produce them. We need people in emerging industries like AI and cybersecurity. We need, need unmanned drone pilots and aviation mechanics. These are all industries that are that are trying to grow and that are trying to persist through uh, the difficult times right now. And we are in a position to help if only we have the resources in order to to make those programs grow. You know, the reality is that in Arizona, community colleges are still living in the economic shadow of the Great Recession. And we deserve to it without the funding uh, to, to get ahead there.
1: Yeah, thanks, Brad. I think that that's a really great point to note um, that both for community colleges and higher ed generally, um, there are so many states where general support for higher education never recovered post Great Recession. And many institutions, even pre-pandemic, were operating at uh, state support levels that were lower than they were earlier than 2007. So this is really sort of adding insult to injury. Um, but Brad, I want to ask you sort of the big question on everyone's mind right now and probably uh, very pressing for you in Arizona, given that uh, the state is seeing a spike right now uh, in uh, COVID cases. Uh, what, do you know what your uh, campuses are going to look like this fall? Are you doing uh, opening up entirely for in-person extru- instruction, um, exclusively online, a hybrid model? Have you guys made any big decisions about what your campuses will look like this fall?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we we set out early to create a framework that gave us a lot of flexibility while recognizing that there was still a lot of risk out there. So early on, we developed and published a schedule that increased our online course offering. So both what we call on your time and live online offerings, and then tried to balance it out with a selection of in-person and hybrid course offerings. So the idea would be that we would have a, a less intense, but still college feeling on <laughs> its footprint. Uh, all of our classes that have in-person elements are required to have an established plan to move coursework online if the situation deteriorates, uh, so we want to make sure that our students are clearly clear about what they are facing. You know, We're in the process of flexing that plan towards a more selective offering, focusing mostly on career and technical programs, arts, other hands-on curriculum as the primary in-person priority, and then moving more of our schedule to remote modalities in order to uh, to set off in a clear way at the beginning of the term. So we're gonna continue to operate very targeted on campus services with most of our employees and faculty continuing to work remotely, at least until the situation in Arizona ultimately eases.
1: Thanks so much, Brad. Um, I wanna, we've come to the end of our time, but I wanna say thank you again to Brad generally. I know that community colleges are um, in a unique place in the midst of this pandemic and are really doing so much to serve uh, large and diverse student populations. Thank you all to all the listeners for joining us again for this episode of Nakubo In Brief. Of course, we apologize for any audio issues you may have experienced. We are, of course, all working remotely as we do this. Uh, So thank you for bearing with us. Uh, Be sure to subscribe to Nakubo In Brief podcast so you can get new episodes as soon as they are available. You can also find our uh, Nakubo In Brief episodes on the Nakubo website under the podcast heading. You can find them uh, for Apple devices in the Apple Podcast Store. And for Android devices, you can find them in the Stitcher app uh, via the Google Play Store. And that is all we have today. Thank you so much for joining us.